0: Thank you. Your host Chris, and here we'll be delving into the multitude of strange occurrences that happen in Scotland. You can contact us with your accounts at the Scottish Paranormal Podcast at gmail.com. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, Podbean, and contact us by either means. Tonight we've got Malcolm Robinson with us, paranormal investigator and researcher for over 40 years, formed SPI in 1979 author of many paranormal books within the within the area, been in numerous TV programmes uh, throughout the UK and also across the world, and been in many conferences, and he's probably one of the only Scottish speakers to, to speak at American conferences as well uh, on the topic. So welcome, Malcolm Robinson. How's it going?
1: Yes, it's going very well, Chris. It's a pleasure to be with you on your show tonight. Yeah, great to be here.
0: Thanks very much. Thanks for joining us. Um, so I'm, I'm going to start by... Being a wee bit bored here and probably asking you one of the questions that you probably get asked all the time when people are going to meet you. Basically, what got your original interest in the paranormal?
1: Well, I guess it stems way back as a young child uh, growing up in Tullabuddy and, and Alawan, central Scotland. I had this deep held fascination for all things weird and wonderful. But I guess that kind of stemmed from my parents taking me to the likes of Blackpool and Skegness and Scarborough, where as soon as we went to those holiday resorts, I immediately headed for the ghost train, you know. And uh, just the captivation of this ghost train going through these dark tunnels with kind of cobwebs falling on your face was, was for me, you know, quite magical in a strange sort of way. And uh, as I grew older, I started to read the books by Charles Fort, mm-hmm. uh, Eric Van Dineken, uh, Jenny Randalls. Mm-hmm. I was intrigued by the TV show, <coughs> TV shows like The Outer Limits and The Twilight Zone, mm-hmm. and of course the movies uh, of the day: The uh, Day the Earth Stood Still, The War of the Worlds, Forbidden Planet, <coughs> excuse me, etc. All these kind of movies and TV shows absolutely fueled my passion for all things weird and wonderful. Then I started to buy a, a number of books on ghosts, but uh, at that time there were no, well, I didn't manage to pick up any serious books. It was all kind of the, the pan book of ghost stories, and um, these were obviously fictionalised accounts of uh, ghostly tales. Um, but, so I started to read the uh, other books by other people, and, uh, you know, true ghost stories, or allegedly true sto- stories of ghosts and hauntings, and, yeah, they were interesting. They were interesting. But I honestly felt that there were no validity to the claims in these books. I honestly felt, Chris, that uh, the whole shooting match was a load of baloney. I, I, <laughs> I didn't put any credence on these tales. I didn't put any credence on UFOs or Nessie or anything like that. And I decided to kind of prove that and go out in a one-man <coughs> excuse me, crusade to kind of, kind of prove this. But how wrong was I, as I progressed through my life, you know, researching these tales? Obviously, there's no smoke without fire. And I soon um, became involved in a number of cases, which we'll speak about uh, today, which totally, totally drew me off that sceptical pen. So it was a combination, as I say, of a young child growing up, um, reading all this stuff, watching stuff on TV, and then initially, when I formed my society, and soon found out that uh, there were strange things about, yes.
0: Obviously you started off as a, a bit of a sceptic in the area of the paranormal, but when you started to get drawn into it, because of many facets of the, the, the paranormal as we know, what kind of part of it that kind of drew your attention the most?
1: Well, I think the, the mainstay, the main thing that really was drew my attention was of course the paranormal. Uh, the Ghosts of guys and the Supernatural was the mainstay of my inquiring mind. Uh, that was followed by UFOs, of course, and of course, uh, our lovely Nessie, uh, <laughs> up at Loch Ness, of course, that held my deep fascination as well. But uh, even today, the mainstay of my real, true interest does indeed lie in that paranormal field. Do we survive the grave? Is there a continuity after physical, material death? You know, Does life go on effectively? And thankfully, due to my research uh, over 40-odd years, for me, personally, you know, I'm now a a, a spiritualist. I firmly believe in life after death only because of my research, speaking to clinical physicians and near-death experiences with patients and a whole range of different things. But certainly it's a paranormal for me, yes.
0: What was your deciding factor to try and get the word out there? Once you started investigating and looking at um, some of the material that was out there and some of the cases that you found, what was the deciding factor for you to try and spread the word and and try and get the, the word out there by actually writing books and, and getting the word out there or and even, obviously, forming the groups and stuff like that?
1: Yeah, it's a simple fact, Chris, that uh, the people have a right to know. Information is for the people and not filing cabinets. I've said that many, many times. The thing is, right, it's no good me researching all these cases my fellow researchers, you know, digging through all these case files and trying to get to the truth and then just filing it away. Mm. You've got to get that information out to the public and it's up to the public to decide if there's any validity or any truth to these claims. Um, you know, the media say that I'm an expert. Not at all. I'm not an expert. Nothing can be further than the truth. I I know nothing, absolutely nothing. The thing is, with my research in their society, I've Happily, we've been involved in this research. It doesn't make you an instantaneous expert. It just means that you're someone who has touched the fabric of these cases. And you've spoken, which I have, to many, many people here in the United Kingdom and in Europe, telling me fantastic tales. And it's these tales that we need to provide an answer for. Are they telling the truth? Are they trying to pull the wool over your eyes? Or is it indeed, you know, very true cases of paranormal activity. The good thing about being a, a public lecturer, Chris, is that people, after my lectures, come to me, and as, I guess the fellow guest speakers, and say, you know what, Malcolm, I've never told my husband about this, but I'm going to tell you. And they start to unload, you know, these wonderful stories, which have sat with them perhaps for years and years and years, and are only now coming out. And uh, these stories deserve to get out there. So. That's basically, you know, that was a deciding factor. And uh, I do that through writing my books and also my lectures, etc. It's not a case of, you know, look at me. It, you know, you hardly make any money writing books. as fellow researchers here in the UK, unless you're like Whitley Strieber or something, you know. <laughs> um, but uh, no, I mean, it's, the, the books are purely to get these stories out and say, look, folks, have a look. You don't have to believe a word of this, but by God, these people have had terrifying experiences, and um, there are many people out there in Scotland and the rest of the world don't know what to do. Who do you go to? Who do you tell? People laugh at me, you know. So for every one person that comes forward, Chris, and maybe two or three or more behind that person saying, "Nah, no me, I, I'm not going forward with my story, no way," and it's a great shame. Even people like myself and my fellow colleagues have been absolutely ridiculed in the press, you know. Mm-hmm. I've, I've been mickey-taken by the media, etc. It's sadly part of the course, I guess, you know. It's just one of these things, uh, you've got to get yourself out there. But, uh, yeah, that's basically, that was a deciding factor. Get these books out. Get that information out. The people have a right to know.
0: Do you feel that um, when you are approached by people who... Um, who haven't talked in the in the past about their experiences when they maybe be seeing a lecture and then they'll they'll think to they contact you. Is it like a weight has been lifted off them?
1: Oh, absolutely, Chris. Yeah, as a weight, you can you can actually see that. You know, you can see it in the face. Seriously, mm-hmm. you can see them just the way their body action is, the body movements, and and they just want to unfold these stories and uh, it allows them to finally come to grips with that. Now, the sad thing is, of course, is that they're looking for. Answers, you know, Mm -hmm. and like I say, I'm not an expert. I I don't have I don't hold all the cards with all the information with all the answers. And I'd be a wise man indeed to truly can say that, you know. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure I've got my own ideas and my own speculations, which will come to throughout the show. Mm -hmm. But that's all they are, Chris. You know, they're just pure speculations on my behalf. Does it provide a satisfactory answer? Some would say so, and others would not. So I guess it's a dilemma that myself and my fellow colleagues uh, have to face on a day-to-day basis. Mm-hmm. Um, and all we can say to these people who come to me uh, to unload these stories is, well, here's what I think. It may not be true. It may not be the way you want it to be, but at least, fingers crossed, it will give you some, I'm not saying closure, that would be a hard thing to say, but it will certainly um, give you some semblance of where I'm coming from as a guy who's been embroiled in this for over 40 years, and I hope that what I said to that gentleman or lady will help along the way, you know.
0: We all know that there's, most families, well, I can believe anyways, they've, they've always got a, a ghost story or a UFO story tucked away somewhere, but I always do believe that everybody's got some type of story to tell, and it's just obviously trying to um, find what that story is, or them being willing to actually talk about it.
1: That's so true, Chris. I mean, you could go out in the street and you could speak to a stranger and just ask the question, not you would, but say for instance you did, and that person might say, no, I, not not to me, my friend, I, I've never seen a ghost, but I'll tell you what, my Uncle Harry has, so, yeah. you know, somebody's got an uncle or an auntie or a second auntie who's got a story to tell, and that's the beauty of it, and that's why you love it, Chris, and your, your group, and myself and my colleagues love it as well. There's always somebody with a story that let us not forget we need to know for sure if that story has any validity.
0: In all the in all the years you've been investigating the paranormal, what validation have you had in the terms of any sightings and experiences yourself?
1: Um, I've got so many, Chris, so many. And uh, I have shared this with other shows, etc. But obviously the, you have a new listening base, so I'm happy to, to go through a, a couple of four instances, yeah. you know. Yeah, if, if we're talking, yeah, if we're talking what's really perplexed me the most, um, probably the top of the tree and, you know, you may have heard it elsewhere, but I'll say for your own listeners, was when I lived in England, I've just recently moved back to Scotland uh, after 23 years living in England. I just came back at the end of February this year, 2021. And um, but whilst I was down in England, uh, I put on a lot of conferences and I did a lot of lectures. We, we did our own SPI lectures in London. And a lady came forward at the close of one of my meetings in London. She says, Malcolm, would you like to see dead people? I went, what? Yeah, going, of course, you know. And uh, to cut a very long story short, but it certainly is. I went to Chingford, uh, in the outskirts uh, of London, and uh, to this lady's house. And she says, Malcolm, we've got a psychic. He's going to be visiting this, the, the house later tonight. And he's going to go into trance. But I need to show you a couple of rooms upstairs just so you can see what's happening. And she took us into one bedroom and there was a little uh, glass case, wooden case with glass shelves. And on that was rings, medals, (coughs) etc. And with little ties on it. And I says, what's that? And she says, Malcolm, that's pure. Um, (laughs) Well, things just fell out into the seance room. Apports. Oh, yes, I know what the apport is. Well, it fell into the seance room and when you go to pick it up, it's really, really hot. And we just decided to, to catalogue this, you know. And then she took us into the main bedroom where the visiting psychic was going to be doing his stuff. And uh, it was just a normal bedroom. There was only two pieces of furniture in there. A tall, slim, slender um, bedroom unit with a small red ambient light on top of it. And then at the far corner of the room where the, you know, the two corners joined. There was a big black sheet covering that corner to the other corner. And behind that was a plastic chair. And um, next to that was a small chest of drawers. And um, she says, yeah, when the psychic comes, you'll meet him in a moment, Malcolm. Um, he's going to go into trance on that chair. And I says, OK, that's fine. Can I check the walls and the floor? What? What do you mean? So I sounded out the walls to see if there were any hidden cavities. You know, it might secrete a kind of mm-hmm. tape recorder, a knocked to the floors and everything. I tried my very best to make sure there were, there were not any hidden devices to, to kind of fool me. And on the wall uh, of this uh, room, there was these little silver tiny bells, which will become apparent in a moment. So anyway, this psychic had turned up, and he, was, he looked quite nervous, actually. And I patted him down to make sure that he wasn't secreting any telescopic rods or anything like that, you know, any... <laughs> Daniel's box of tricks, etc. And um, we sat on behind this uh, black curtain and we strapped his arms, sorry, his wrists and his legs to the chair by heavy velcro straps. And he took his shoes off and his white socks was protruding underneath this black cloth. So then we started to, uh, on the advice of the psychic and that, uh, we started to sing songs like Roll Out the Barrel, old, old English songs, and just to create that ambience, and then she turned the lights off, and with the red ambient light, your face got accustomed to, you know, what was in the room. Now, I was sitting with three other people in similar white plastic chairs facing the corner of the room with this black curtain, and then suddenly these little bells on the wall started to tinkle, 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 and then these voices, Chris, male, female, young, old, it was abounding everywhere in the room. Above your head, under your chin, under your chair, next to your ear, everywhere. you know. And I went, okay, who's, who's throwing their voice here? This is pretty clever. Because I'm always, even though I firmly believe in the life after death, I'm still sceptical. You better believe it, I'm still sceptical. And so I'm seeing who's throwing their voice and I, everybody was as amazed as I was. And then suddenly, I kid you not, it's like, something at like a movie, like an Arnold Schwarzenegger movie, a face moulded into the very fabric of this black cloth and pushed itself out into the... Well, not into the middle of the room because it wasn't that tall a cloth, but and as it rose up, you could see the guy was still sitting down. You know, his feet was planted firmly on the floor. It was a horrible, evil face, moving and twisting, and then it just went back to weight, and the cloth fell down again. And then at, uh, at that point... There was a, a, a tremendous burst of cold wind pervaded the, the whole room. You, your breath was physically freezing up in front of you. You could physically see, you know, as you breathed out. Yeah. Your, the breath was more or less freezing up. I was, incre- was so, so cold. Unbelievable. Then at that point, there was a small chest of drawers next to that cloth, next to that sheet, and it started to rise up, rise up slowly into the air right up to the ceiling and slowly traversed a few feet at the top of the ceiling Chris mm-hmm. and lowered itself down and fell on my toes nice. and I was absolutely gobsmacked as anybody would be but uh, I've got to tell you the truth and what I'm about to say you'll laugh and I see your listeners all laugh but this is what happened tell the truth Malcolm this is what happened mm-hmm. a voice boomed out was Mr Robinson impressed by this <laughs> And I said, look, I'd be more impressed when you took it back. We shall see what we can do. Now, I did the cardinal sin, uh, Chris. You should never, and you know this yourself, you should never, ever interfere with psychic energy when it's happening. So what I did is I hooked my finger under the top lid of this chest of drawers, and I said to myself, you ain't going nowhere. You're staying with me. Okay, right, move it. Move the chest of drawers. On you go and nothing happened. Not a thing. Ah, oh, this is ridiculous. I'm saying to myself, Chris, why did I bother me? Why did I do this? <laughs> and then suddenly, after about two and a half, three, four minutes, it, you could feel it moving. And I'm with my finger, I'm trying to pull it back, and I couldn't hold it any longer. And it just slipped like a hot knife through butter and floated right up into the air and went back the way. Now, else? this is a lovely wee story on the radio show, How I wish you Chris and your listeners had been in that room at that time because it's only then that people will say, you know what Malcolm, you were right.
0: Yeah.
1: Telling a story of this nature which is so true is nice, but you know, is it proof? The sad thing is I was not allowed to bring in any video equipment or audio tape Mm equipment and um, you know, which was a great, great shame. But even if I had have done, Chris, even if I had have magically captured this on videotape, you know, this chest, the drawers rising up into the air, would the sceptics of the world have believed this? He would have said, Malcolm, well done. Ten out of ten, you've done that on computer. And, uh, you know, sometimes you can't win, you know.
0: <laughs> um, you, you sound a bit like <laughs> myself in terms of people ask me, um, do I believe? I believe that I'm a sceptical believer. I mean so will <laughs> um will be at the point where obviously I need to be convinced. I mean at the same time I do believe. <laughs> so um no totally interest. I take it if if that maybe runs into the next question, after investigating so many cases throughout your time within the paranormal, what cases perplexed you the most? You found. Well, There've been a few
1: and, and if you're happy for me to rattle off a few for instance. Yeah, 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 I am, yeah, really. Um I was up at um well, I got a phone call from a chap, um, sadly he's passed away now, but he says, Malcolm, I'm using a torch to flash into the night sky and I'm getting bursts of light coming down. Would you like to come up to Altby in Western Ross to see this? And uh, so I kind of cut, um, I killed two birds with one stone, because I was going down in the Loch Ness submarine on this particular weekend and I says, well, Altby, it's still a fair journey for Inverness, but um, I could do it. So, anyway, this chap came down, uh, and after I did my Loch Ness submarine dive, um, he took us up in his car, and we drove about three hours or so in his, his old ramshackle car, away up to Altby and Wester Ross. Um, after a cup of tea, now, we went drove out into the countryside. The beautiful, beautiful, what a lovely part of the world that is. I've never been to Wester Ross before as a Scots guy, incredible. And um, it was a lovely starry night, and, he's, and now, just to set the scene, Chris. The only other guy I know who did this was a chap called Arthur Shuttlewood, who was uh, a newspaper editor uh, in Warminster in Wiltshire, when Wiltshire had a spate of UFO sightings back in the 60s, just like Yeah, And he was using a torch to flash into the night sky, and he too was getting things coming down. So there we were, standing in this lovely Scottish countryside, and uh, he says, Malcolm Ritchie, and, uh, nonchalantly, this is what I do, I, I just get this torch here and look at this, and if man, I, I, I kid you not, I kid you not. No sooner had he did that, than this tremendous column of light, now I, I, I want to say to yourself and your listeners, it wasn't a solid object, it was a column of structured light. I call it in a sense like a rope ladder of light because it was tumbling down, but it was solid. Mm-hmm. And there's me, you know, with the binoculars and the camera round my neck, Looking at this thing, I was like a cartoon character with a jaw. My chin was on the ground next to my shoes. I'm a like, what? And uh, you know, sometimes you just you, you can't get out of that situation. Yeah. And then no sooner had it done that, and it zoomed up on, into the sky. And uh, now this didn't come from an aircraft. It wasn't a player. It wasn't a drone. This is back in 1994. Um, it was none of those things. And um, it, obviously, I, I just couldn't reach the camera in time to do, to get a photograph of this thing. Mm-hmm. With any investigation, and you'll hear me talk about other cases tonight, but with any UFO investigation, the first port I call is the uh, local airports, the national airports, to see if anything was flying in the air at that time, at that location. You talk to the local police to see if any members of the public has notified them of something unusual. Mm-hmm. You would then, you know, look at the local flying clubs. Um, you would look uh, to the Ministry of Defence with any your exercises on going at the time not that they'll probably tell you but you still got to do it so there's all these different avenues which we did on that occasion and with the cases coming up that I'll tell you about and nothing nothing was in there at that time and that was a strange one you know and then another UFO sighting that I had was oh, oh when was that about 10 years ago Not maybe not as much as that I was giving a lecture to a group called Probe uh, in Blackpool And after the conference, myself and a guy called Mike Hallowell and some other guys went out to Blackpool Beach. It was night, it was dark, and we we stood on the sand dunes looking out at the sea. And it was again, fortunately, it was a lovely starry sky. And um, suddenly we saw this white ball of light coming across uh, the sea, uh, maybe about, I don't know, maybe a thousand feet above our heads uh, at a distance initially. And we're looking at this and not one of us spoke because not we all knew we're looking for the navigation lights. Mm-hmm. We're looking to hear the drone of an aircraft. We never heard that. We never had the navig we never saw any navigation lights. And then it was right above our head, so we're kinda of craning our neck to look up. No navigation lights, no sound. And it flew over um and you know admittedly you do have Blackpool Airport, maybe about or 500 yards across the road, mm-hmm. but it flew over that airport and went away. And that's the thing about UFO sightings. They're not all structured cla- craft or, or what have you. They are balls of light, as I'm sure your listeners will know. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, there's also the, the sighting at Craig Lusker Reservoir near Dunfermline, where uh, a chap who was an artist, he was a painter, he went down to this reservoir with his camera to take some photographs of the of this lovely reservoir, and he was, his object was to go home, look at his pictures, and paint from the pictures. That was that's what his intentions were. Uh, so he was down there at the uh, Lusker reservoir, and he suddenly became aware of a you kind know, of a, a buzzing sound, and he never paid too much of attention to that because he thought it was perhaps the electricity pylons that traversed that area. Mm-hmm. If you stand underneath a big, you know, transmitter pile and you'll hear a soft, resonant buzz. Yeah. And um, so he started not paying too much attention to it. And then suddenly it got louder and louder and louder and louder and louder. What is that? So he turned around to see where the sound was coming from. And he was stunned, like I was at Altebet. He was stunned to see initially this two-tiered grey object, like a hat shape, you know, and like a bowler hat, but just with a flat bowler hat, for yeah. want of a better word, you know, so at the top part and a, a, a lower part. And then he, he was, he found himself, Jenny Randall's a famous British authoress, um, she says that uh, when somebody is in close proximity to a UFO, they find themselves in a strange environment. She calls it the Oz Factor. Yeah. And he says, the witness said to me, he says, Malcolm, I, don't mind. I felt as if I was in one of those Victorian bell jars, uh, you know, only about 8 or nine, ten 10 feet. It encapsulated me. I never heard any bird song. I never heard the low rumble of the traffic on a nearby road. Total silence. It was just me and this object. I couldn't even reach for my camera, he said. And then suddenly the object, or the top part of the object, telescoped into the main body, and it tilted, and it... Boom, It was gone in seconds. Thankfully, just before it left, he managed to take two photographs. And he was so disappointed because by that time, the the top part had telescoped into the main body of the object. So the top part doesn't look so tall. It was a wind-on camera. It was pre-digital. It was film he was using. And the second shot was just a dot in the sky. But we um, sent the main photograph off to Ground Saucer Watch in Phoenix, Arizona, and their analysis team said that this, this subject was indeed flying. It was an excessive 30 feet. It wasn't an aircraft. It wasn't a helicopter. And for want of a better word, it was, it was a UFO. And again, with the checks, with the, the airports and the police, nothing. Nothing was in the air at that time. And, I mean, there's so many cases. There's the Bonnybridge phenomena. the a Deckman Woods incident. You know, there's so many cases we could speak about
0: you got any theories, or I'm just going to divert a wee bit for that, on, on the Oz Factor? I mean, because you, you hear the Oz Factor happen in, in many paranormal cases. You hear it in Bigfoot cases, you hear it in cryptid, other cryptid cases, you hear it in UFO cases, or even like fairy cases in the past. It's such a prominent thing that you also hear in a lot of paranormal um, encounters.
1: Yeah, it is. I mean, it's, that's a very true point. It's not just uh, indicative of uh, UFO sightings. It can be someone that's sighting a ghost. And I think, you know what, I think perhaps maybe it's like partly the shock factor. Your body goes into shock and it numbs all the kind of senses, well, mostly the senses. And it, it just, it, you know, you're just transfixed on whatever you are looking at, be it Bigfoot, Sasquatch, Ghost, a Geist, UFO your senses seem to either just go into shock for a moment and then they're also heightened as well. Mm-hmm. And uh, I guess the Oz factor is a, is a great way to, to to state that kind of effect on witnesses.
0: You must have seen a lot of strange cases throughout your time, uh, investigations and, and um, for all different sections of the paranormal. What would keep Malcolm Robinson up at night?
1: Um... A really good poltergeist, I guess. (laughs) Uh, I mean, I I would love to be in in an environment where a poltergeist was happening and just see chairs flying about and things falling about, uh, you know, coming off shelves and all that. I mean, there's a lot of footage on YouTube and the internet of this, but it's so easy to, to, to trick people, you know, with a small string, a piece of fishing gut tied to something and just pulling it away off camera. Oh, look at that. Wow. You know, it's so easy. So I mean, I think for me, yes, probably a poltergeist or maybe even a full-blooded apparition, just suddenly materialising there. I mean, I have seen a half a leg appear in the Tolbooth jail in Stirling. Mm-hmm. We were doing an investigation there one night, and I was just—I just nonchalantly talked to one, turning round to talk to one of my investigators, and my attention was drawn to next to the guy was this white stocking. With a black shoe and a big silver buckle, and then you kind of go what? It's, it's then funny. you look again, and it's not there. You know,
0: that's exactly and, what I pictured there when you said the like. leg. I'm looking you. <laughs> I, <laughs> that, a, that was exactly the same description. I, I, just what I um, remembered there. I mean, that's that's mad. <laughs> um, yeah, so I
1: mean, it's it. That's that's uh, you know something that, that would be scary. I mean, the Saki Poltergeist guy's case. That's. Uh, that's my, my latest book, my eighth book on uh, Scotland's best poltergeist case. I was only three <laughs> years of age at that time. Uh, it occurred in 1960, but uh, how I wish I had been involved in that, to see the enormity of not just what happened in that poor little girl's house, but also, you know, the guys followed her to school, followed her to another house in Bedford, sorry, in the Dollar and Clackmanningshire as well. So that, that would be something else to say that.
0: Has any case in from a case directly affected you? You heard going back to the past cases with John Keel, for example, where, yeah. where he got a lot of um, strange phone calls, or he would almost, you could maybe get something physical, or it could be a psychological aspect here.
1: Yeah, I mean, and I guess because I've put myself directly in the ballpark of paranormal phenomena, that um, when it does happen, it scares you so much i will better watch my choice of words there. <laughs> I'll give you a few, for instances. Um, you know, this is to answer your question, has any case directly affected me? Well, one case, we came back from uh, an investigation somewhere in central Scotland, and I went back to my house, and uh, it was late at night, and I was just kind of trying to wind down. My, my brain was all still actively of what had been happening. And then three loud bangs, loud knocks, came from behind my head, And it was a, you know, it's a stone wall, Chris. And behind that is just empty space. You know, it's a semi-detached house. It's empty space. And then um, on another occasion in Stirling, our psychic said to me, Malcolm, oh, my goodness me, don't you feel spirit in the room tonight? I said, nope, not at all. Nope. (laughs) You are joking. It's everywhere. Nope. And she says, okay, stand over there at the other end of the room. And it was in semi-darkness, Chris, you know, but again, your eyes were focused. And she says, extend your arm and ask Spirit to touch you. And so um, I did that. And I can honestly say that all my fellow investigators were definitely, definitely at the other side of the room. So there's me, like an idiot, standing with my arm out the other side of the room. I says, "Okay, if there's anybody from Spirit's side, please touch the back of my hand. Nothing happened for about two minutes and I was ready just to you know, come out of that and say what a lot of nonsense when suddenly a tremendous pressure pressed down firmly on my hand and it was so big a pressure, Chris, press. actually it was like one of these Bavarian people with the big jugs of beer and slapping their thighs, it slapped my thigh. And uh, I mean, I've always said jokingly at my conferences, perhaps the best piece of kit that a researcher, a ghostbuster, call them what you will, needs to have in their armory is a pair of bicycle clips. Now think about it. <laughs> <laughs> and um, there was another case, time when we were doing a case in Kirkintilloch near Glasgow, and it was an ex, uh, ex-police officer's house, and my goodness me, what a lovely, lovely big house this fellow had. When we went in, Chris, every single wall... I had a crucifix hanging down from it. Every door had a photostat copy of the Lord's Prayer. And I went, oh my God, we clearly are in for a, a show tonight. To mm-hmm. cut a very long story short, because I've got to kind of trim all these stories. To cut a long story short, as we were walking into one of the upper bedrooms, it was like somebody had brushed my hair with their fingers. Mm-hmm. And uh, I turned around and I said to one of the investigators, you know, to put the light on because the, the lights were off, and I'm thinking maybe it's a piece of plaster hanging down from the ceiling. Have I mm-hmm. I've walked into a, I don't know, you know, a, a kid's airplane, airfix model? But when he put the light on, there were absolutely nothing above my head. And um, so that affected me for sure, you know. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Um, a, a case, I mean, some of these stories I have told in other shows, but uh, another case that did affect me. Was we were dealing with a haunting uh, again in a town in Clackmannanshire, and um, and we were in this bedroom. This poor lady was subjected to so much p- problems with uh, the ghosts and stuff. And um, so we're sitting and kind of semi-darkness. Nothing was happening. And uh, again, I to myself because believe you me, the, the psychic phenomenon that we've attended happens only one one out of ten times. Nine times you attend, nothing happens. Mm. That one time, Chris, I'm sure you'll agree with me, that one time makes it all worthwhile, it really does. And what happened on that occasion was that, um, sitting in darkness, nothing's happening, I'm ready to go home, and then the whole room illuminated, exploded in a a tiny pinpricks of white light, like a November the 5th child sparkler, you know these handheld sparklers? It was all over the room, all over the walls, all over the ceiling, all over the carpets, all over, everywhere. And I turned to my, uh, the psychic and I says, what on earth is this? And she, she kind of laughed at me as if I should know better. Malcolm, <laughs> come on now, that's pure psychic energy. Is it really? <laughs> is it like a wee kid you know, from his teacher trying to, to learn a lesson? And then it only lasted about 19, 20, 21 seconds, like a dimmer switch, it slowly faded away and we were left back in blankness. So we raced to the, the VCR machine. This is just a wee bit pre-digital. VCR machine, press stop, rewind and play. Nothing. We hadn't captured it. The cameras didn't capture it. Again, I refer back to what I said earlier. If we had a captured it, Chris, would the sceptics have accepted it or said, you've done that on computer, Malcolm? Good job. So sometimes you can't win, you know.
0: See, that's it. We're in this, the kind of times now where you, you can... People can fake stuff, and nobody believes any UFO pictures you get these days as well. You know what I mean? And we're in the we're probably in the unfortunate realm where um, we're left to rely on governments to actually show us stuff to actually so we can see it's proof because you, you know there's that much stuff out there that people will not believe these days. Um,
1: and that's the you know. thing. You're quite correct. You know, you can get apps now to import a ghost into your family picture or a UFO. <laughs> um, the good news is, and I've said it before, we are. We are indeed living in Steven Spielberg's DreamWorks Laboratory age. And all the technologies we've got, you can make a UFO or a ghost look so, so real. Mm -hmm. Thankfully, the same uh, apparatus, the same equipment can be used to find out if it is real or not real. Mm -hmm. Edge separation, pixel uh, enhancement, color contour enhancement. You know, you can really look into the depths of any given photograph say, Ah, I can see a small string supporting a UFO model from a mm-hmm. tree. So whilst you could be very clever to construct a fake UFO the same technology, thank goodness, can unmask it as well. And that's 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 a good thing.
0: Yeah, definitely. Even you you'll still even regardless if you get the smoking gun, the skeptics will still know Paul believe it <laughs> in that sense. Some of them anyway, you know what they're like.
1: Oh um, yes, absolutely.
0: When you get obviously people perceiving the paranormal and, and having encounters all kind of raft different kinds of encounters what kind of theories have you got on why some people can perceive these things and others don't i mean you can maybe have a, a a group of people who maybe have a combined ufo sighting and maybe half of them only see it and some don't see it or and that could that could fall in line with a lot of different paranormal events have you any have you any theories on that
1: absolutely and uh I've never veered away from this theory and I'll never will. I never ever will. And that theory is that the more psychic you are, the more attuned you'll be to see, be a UFO or a ghost, possibly more in the paranormal field. I've said it many times. Mm. You get to have six people in a haunted house, three people will see a spirit in the corner of the room and the other three will go, "What? "What? I can't see anything. And it's maybe because they're not on that kind of wavelength. It sounds a wee bit Steven Spielberg and Hollywood, but they may maybe not on that wavelength. It's like the old radio, Chris, you know, before the DAB radios. You turn the dial, you've got radio one, right? Turn it to radio two. Hold on, hold on, we'll get it. Turn it to radio two. And you're getting all this mishmash of stations. Then finally you have tuned into radio two because you're on that frequency, because you're on that wavelength. And so that's my take it, you know, and I'll never be a bit. And um, I do think if you are psychic, uh, now some people may be born with that ability. Some people can develop it, but um, I do believe that that for me is the answer. The more psychically attuned and aware you are, you will get, you will see something.
0: Do you think Scotland stands out in the realms of paranormal sightings and reports than other places around the world or like even within the UK?
1: Well, it's certainly up there with uh, the rest of uh, the world, for sure. Scotland as a nation has a history of uh, haunted castles, etc., as as we all know. And, um, you know, as far as uh, window areas, we have uh, Bonnybridge Bridge in Stirlingshire in central Scotland, which has been what some people would say is a window area for a number of years. Uh, why that should be, uh, we really don't know. We have that in the Pennines, you know, down in England, Gulf Breeze in Pensacola, Cola in Florida. There's certain hot spots or window areas on this planet that seem to attract a higher concentration of UFO reports than anywhere else. And, of course, the, the reason is, like, why is this? You know, and I don't have the answers why Bonnybridge was singled out. Not just Bonnybridge, like Falkirk, Slamannon, and all the little towns and villages all around it, but um, it kicked off in 1992. But I was doing research in that area in 1982, mm-hmm. ten years before Bonnie Bridge hit the world headlines. So, um, but certainly, yeah, Scotland as a nation has its fair shares. <laughs> fair share of ghosts, that's for sure. And I've, uh, I've thankfully I've, I've been involved with a few of them, not them all, of course.
0: Talking about Scotland and UFOs, we, we obviously there was quite a talk tonight a wee bit about um, the Bonnie Bridge and Falkirk. Do it in inverted commas, like the Falkirk Triangle or the Bonnie Bridge Triangle. If you want, you maybe try and we can maybe run through some accounts and what happened in, in Bonnie Bridge and maybe chronologically. I know obviously a lot of people think it started in the 90s, as you said, it was back in the early 80s where, where you first actually um, started seeing reports and stuff within that area. Yeah, for me,
1: um, when I was living in Scotland at a time, I spoke to a, a lady who we call a, a repeater witness, and she was a lady who saw UFOs on a regular basis and uh, she stayed uh, near Falkirk And, um, you know, I, I, honestly, when I interviewed her, I felt that she was sincere. She was honest. And um, I, I did, you know, go to her home a few times and then late at night, we were looking at the sky, but I never saw anything and neither did she on those occasions it's always a way isn't it mm-hmm. um so that was in 1982 then in 1992 i was listening to a radio broadcast on central fm uh, a, a radio station which initially was based i think it was in Falkirk at the time i'm not sure mm-hmm. and then um, it had Councillor billy buchanan on and billy buchanan was talking about these ufo reports and i just knew that i had to get involved you know so I immediately contacted Billy Buchanan and he was so, so glad to talk to me. Here was somebody who could physically help him and help his constituents. And what we have to bear in mind, Chris, is he was elected to serve the people of Bonnybridge in any way, shape or form. Mm-hmm. He did not expect in a million years to be dealing with people chapping on his door and saying, look, I've seen a UFO, what are you going to do? You know, he it, it it thought it was, people were taking the mickey. But as more phone calls and letters and knocks in the door happened, you shouldn't realise, whoa, what is going on here? So anyway, I assisted, um, I was one of the main researchers to assist Billy, Billy Buchanan on that. Ron Halliday did come along as well. Lovely guy, nice researcher. And, um, but in the main, I followed, Main and Billy was everywhere. We did so much TV, so many radio. And then in, in, 90, when was it, 90, we, in the early 90s, it would have been 1993 possibly, We did a a lecture in uh, a local hotel, and it was absolutely rammed. It was packed to the gunnels, Mm -hmm. not just by interested people who came to find out what was going on, but also by witnesses. Uh, I gave a talk. We had uh, a Glasgow rock group called CE4 Mm -hmm. who write and perform songs about UFOs. They do that. whilst will start talking about it. They sing about it. And my God, the music's amazing. CE4, check them out. Mm And um, so we did that, and uh, then 1994, we did the Falkirk Town Hall conference, and there was over 800 people who was uh, at the Falkirk Town Hall to listen to me, to listen to uh, English researcher Philip Mantle, and again, the Glasgow Rock Group, CE4. There were camera crews from all over the world, the people were standing at the sites and sitting in the aisles and all the rest of it, breaking all the health and safety rules you could ever dream of. <laughs> And uh, it was a wonderful occasion because we got more witnesses from there. Then we started to get camera crews from Japan. And um, this is all logged. This is all true. It's in the books and everything. Mm-hmm. Japan, Australia, you know, Germany, etc. all wanting to tell their own viewers back in Germany, back home, what was happening in this small Scottish town of Bonnybridge, you know. And um, we had a number of witnesses. There was a chap uh, who was driving in his car towards Castle carry Viaduct, that's a railway viaduct uh, in the Bonny Bridge area, mm-hmm. and uh, it was getting dark, and as he was driving along the road, he saw this large black triangular object sitting above, it's slowly moving down from the sky, and then sat above the viaduct. It was then joined by a secondary and similar object, triangular, point to point, so he's slowing down, he's craning his neck through the windscreen of the car to look up at this. Mm-hmm. Other motorists were doing the same, incidentally. And then suddenly both objects they were gone. They just screamed away in seconds. And then we had um, we had this family, the the a family Sloggett family, that's right. Um, they were having a wee walk one night on the moors behind Bonnie Bridge. You have high Bonnie Bridge and Low Bonnie Bridge. Mm-hmm. Hi, Bonnie Bridge, you have a lot of farmer's fields, and uh, we used to do a lot of sky watching there with uh, fellow researchers. Anyway, the mother, the son, and the daughter were walking along this uh, little path in, a, you know, up at the moors, and then suddenly, and again, this is their testimony, I'm not putting any salt and pepper on the story, this is their testimony, a blue ball of light came down from the sky and sat in a farmer's field. It was about maybe three times the size of a basketball. And as it sat in his field, Chris, the farmer's wire fence at the side of it started to vibrate and shake. Uh, Needless to say, you know, they were gone. They were were out of there in seconds. And um, as they rushed away, this tremendous burst of white light came out of some trees. And, I mean, these are just a few witnesses. Uh, Another quick, for instance, was uh, a chap in Denny. And Denny is still part of the Volker Triangle. I don't like that word, incidentally. Mm. It's not a triangle at all. It's just an area. I wouldn't, I wouldn't put a triangle on it. Anyway, this chap is he's, he's driving, driving in his car from Denny to Stirling. He was going to Stirling to collect his wife from the bingo. In his car was his two young sons. So he's driving along this road towards Stirling. And funnily enough, again, fields on either side. And then suddenly his kid screamed out, Dad! Dad! What's... What, a helicopter? What's that? What's that? And he's, 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 the father slowed down and he looked out of the car to the left and he saw... Actually, it was very similar to the gentleman saw in the Craig Lusker Reservoir, a two-tiered object, although it had a kind of red, a green and a blue light on its underside. Now, he knew straight away, straight away, this wasn't a conventional helicopter or an aircraft of any description and then as if the story couldn't get any more bizarre it did because suddenly an instantaneous fog bank tall fog bank not just lying along the road vertically standing up Mm. with a straight edge to it you know straight edge fog bank appeared in front of his car his car screamed through that and he went on to his destination of Stirling. So when we interviewed the guy, you know, we said, well, you know, did you, did you notice any time? there time difference? No, not that I can recall. Mm-hmm. Uh, I got there on time. And I, obviously I'm saying that because you and I know that on some occasions there's missing time associated with some, not all, UFO incidents, more so the A70 case, which we can talk about if you like mm-hmm. shortly. And um, But that was a bizarre one. Bonnie Bridge at the height of the early 1990s was truly awash with objects in the sky from balls of light falling down from cylindrical objects to your classic flying saucer shape. There was a kind of object, and again, got to say it as it is, tell the truth, no salt and pepper, an object like a Toblerone, but in the box, you know, Mm -hmm. a Toblerone shape flying silently and slowly across the Stirlingshire skies. Um, the the sightings have kind of diminished over the years. I mean, you still see the odd one back and forward. Um, Billy Buchanan is trying. He's now not a councillor anymore. He's a provost. You know, he's he's, mm-hmm. he's went up in the in the rank and field, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Um, he's been over to Roswell, New Mexico, trying to get um, the town of Bonnie Bridge twin with Roswell. I think we're hoping that, that may happen in due course. Mm-hmm. He was trying to get a visitor centre put into bonny bridge so that people because people come from all over the world chris yeah just to see this wee scottish town and they're nothing once you walk through the high street that's it you're done Mm. so he was hoping to have a week in a visitor center with photographs and interaction videos and what have you but again that's all maybe pie in the sky unless the lottery funding people may inject some money into it but um, it's, you know, my plans now that I'm back in Scotland again and uh, that I do intend to hold more sky watches on the moors at uh, Bonnybridge, sky watches over in Fife at Falkland Hill where another spectacular case happened a few years ago and uh, also Deckmont Woods and, and various other places.
0: In Bonnybridge, Bridge, you think, obviously, the media attention it got... Uh, um it helped sightings in, in, in a sense where more people would report them or more people looked up the, the scene what was happening in the press. So they would be more akin to look at the sky. You know? I mean, because you, you, people would turn and say, I've never seen a UFO, I've never seen that. Well, how often do they look? <laughs> I mean? So you think that helped it a bit in a sense as well.
1: Well, it did. I mean, um, it did to a degree, you know, because um, once people were aware of what was going on, yeah, you're right, they, they went out into the, in their back gardens and had a look and let us not forget the vast majority of UFO reports can be easily identified as high as 95%. Mm -hmm. And Bonnie Bridge is on the flight path to both Glasgow and Edinburgh airports. (coughs) Excuse me. (coughs) And you also have um, Cumbernauld Airport uh, very close by as well. So that area does receive a lot of air traffic, and we shouldn't forget that. And sadly, some people report seeing what they believe to be a UFO, and it's not. Maybe due to bad lighting conditions or the sunlight striking off the the fuselage of an aircraft that takes away the wing. They think they're looking at something bizarre. The human sight is still fallible. Many people can be fooled by ordinary mundane things. And even when you look into the sky and into the clouds, you'll say, oh, that looks like a face. Oh, look at that. Looks like a horse. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You know, the human mind is hardwired to see faces in anything. You know, the, the, the patterns on, on your curtains, etc. If you stare at it long enough, you'll see a face or whatever you may see. Mm. So, um, you know, like any area in the world it's had a lot of sightings, um, there's a lot of misidentifications as well.
0: Even on the cases where it was unmistakably a UFO, You've possibly done more investigating on what it wasn't and actually what it was to actually probably silence sceptics in, in a certain way. In that is that kind of the, the main way to do it, to, to cross off if and what it was, even though you know it, it, it wasn't going to be, example, like a plane or something else? You would go through that due diligence to make sure that all these things were checked off, because obviously you would get the sceptics coming out after the case came out.
1: Absolutely. I mean, we do have, uh, initially we have uh, UFO sighting account forums, which uh, has a lot of questions, <laughs> a lot of questions. And people can, you know, tick off the boxes on that. Uh, you know, whether you're wearing glasses, how good your eyesight. We even ask questions that um, maybe some people say, what? And that is, you know, have you been on drugs? Do you smoke cannabis? Mm-hmm. Um, we have to ask these questions because if you don't, the sceptics will say, ah, did you ask him if he was smoking, you know, <laughs> cannabis? Was he on cocaine or anything? And no, we didn't ask that. Ah, there you go, Malcolm. Mm. So we have to inject those kind of personal questions into it. I mean, I remember once when I was living in uh, London, um, we this chap uh, telephoned my, my house and says, look, wow, well, you got to come over to my house. I've got some fantastic evidence of UFOs. And the guy was serious. You know, he sounded incredible. So myself and my partner at the time went over to his house and he couldn't get the VHS tape in the machine quick enough, you know. (laughs) He was almost putting it in upside down. And eventually he did it and he says, look, look, look. What we were looking at, Chris, was these columns of light coming up from the ground in the distance, above rooftops, I should say, Mm -hmm. and uh, illuminating low-lying clouds. And it was doing a circular dance on the low-lying clouds Mm -hmm. and he was jumping about, he was so excited. And me and my partner knew straight away, uh, who's going to tell him first? And I, and I looked at my partner and she, she nodded. She said, no, you tell him. Okay, sir. I mean, what this looks like to me is it's laser light. What? Oh, it looks like laser lights illuminating a low line. No, 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 no. It's not that at all. I I thought you believed in UFOs, Mr. Robinson. Mm-hmm. Well, I don't believe that. My job is to get to the bottom of it, sir. So what are you trying to tell me? That, that's laser lights. Uh, yes, and he more or less threw us out of the house, Chris. And I'll tell you what, we found out that it was laser lights. It was a new discotheque that had opened about a mile away or so. Mm-hmm. And was, <laughs> to, to kind of drop people in, they were have these laser lights and they were hitting a low-lying cloud. So the desire by some people to believe in these subjects is maybe even stronger than my desire to disprove them, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know. Um, and But that's my job, yes. Yeah, and the same with any researcher, you got to... Be sceptical. You've got to go in with a heart and ask those pertinent questions. And if you get thrown out a house for doing so, then so be it. But you've got to be critical.
0: It must be quite hard, actually, you know, telling people that they're wrong when, when they're when they're that adamant, they've got something, and they're that excited at it. That means so it must be a hard task to actually tell them that it's a laser light or it's or it is a plane or whatever it is. And that means so I can imagine you being in some um, comfortable situations where you'd have to maybe tell people these things.
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, another one comes to mind. Uh, my friends from Glasgow, um, the guys from Rock Group CE4, uh, Brian McMullen and his son Brian as well, um, invited me up to Glasgow. They had a case on where a lady was seeing a lot of UFOs in the sky. This is even more funny. I shouldn't, I shouldn't laugh, but I'm <laughs> even thinking about it. So we went into this tenement building in Glasgow and um, she made us a nice cup of tea and biscuits. And she was very sweet. She was lovely. She stayed alone. She was maybe about 70-odd, you know. And she says, oh, yes. And she looked at her watch. Oh, they'll be here any minute. They'll be here just now. You watch. And she pulled back the curtains. And over in the distance, there was this aircraft coming into land at Glasgow Airport in the distance, maybe two mile away or wherever it was, you know. There it is. See? See? And then we're all looking at each other and went, what? She's kidding us on. Surely she knows that's an aircraft. Come on. And she wasn't. And we said, madam, yes, that, that's actually an aircraft. No, it's not. <laughs> <laughs> it is honestly. You know, and it was you saw the navigation lights flashing, Chris, you know, and uh, sadly, you know, you're in this environment where you're, you're bursting someone's bubble who thinks they're seeing aliens from wherever and mm-hmm. uh, and it's only, you know, the seven three seven coming in to London Gatwick <laughs> to Glasgow <laughs> Airport. So it's it, it does have a laugh there again.
0: guess. going back to the Falkirk, Falkirk area, well, I'd say obviously Falkirk, it did stretch for Falkirk to West Lothian and to Across, I know we in Stirlingshire. I mean, so it was, yes. quite, a, it was quite a big area in central, central Scotland where a lot of this was. I'd still say concentrated because it's not a, a, a large line area. You know what I mean, all well, that area um, when you look at it geographically was the, the main flap in between like ninety two and ninety four and ninety five. And what kind of numbers were in, in between that um, for the, when the cases that you were seeing, roughly? Well, that's a good point
1: because and the reason that the reason that is a good point is. Um, I would safely say between 1992 and, say, 1998, there were upwards of maybe about 600 UFO sightings mm. that came to me. Now, out of that, I would say probably half, was, would I say, was the real deal. Now, 300 doesn't sound much. Mm,
0: that's
1: Sadly, um, you know, the, the newspapers just put an extra zero on it. Mm-hmm. We couldn't believe it. We we, 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 we said to the newspapers, why are you doing this? It's not as much UFO sightings as that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but we've got to sell papers, Mister Robinson. So we were me and Billy Buchanan was blasted by fellow researchers, saying that's never as much as that. You know, three thousand or whatever it may be. We never said it was. You know, <laughs> and um, we were getting all the the, the the grief from our colleagues, and we were in a terrible predicament for saying that. You know, these these are people are reading the papers, and we never said that. We never said it was that. So I would safely say about 300. What I should have also pointed out, Chris, getting back briefly to the the Bonnybridge sightings, is um, Billy Buchanan and I, uh, Provost Buchanan and I, went down to 10 Downing Street with a petition to uh, campaign uh, to get the Prime Minister to open up a government inquiry into the UFO sightings in Bonnybridge. We were sick to death getting nowhere with Donald Dewar and, and some other parliamentary people here in Scotland. Mm. So we went down to 10 Downing Street with the petitions and um, you know we, we did that with John Major, we got nowhere. Tony Blair, nowhere. Gordon Brown, nowhere. David Cameron, nowhere. Now we elected, that's the British people elected these people into Parliament and they're not helping us at all. All we got from these Prime Ministers via the MOD was a tired old statement that as these objects, these UFOs, do not constitute a threat to the defence of the United Kingdom, the British government will not open up a governmental inquiry into these sightings. And that really frustrated us, Chris, mm-hmm. because some of these sightings in Bonny Bridge were so close you could have thrown a stone at you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so we will still campaign, we will still try our best to turn our files, our video footage, our photographs over to anybody in Parliament who wants to to investigate this and I hope that when Scotland gets its independence that the Scottish, new Scottish government will open up a government, Scottish government inquiry into these sightings, that's my hope anyway.
0: It's a big part of the UFO history in Scotland Yeah, overall the paranormal stuff in Scotland is vast, and I mean this is a part of it, but it's, I think it's good highlighting this area of it, to maybe newcomers to the subject, I mean because you might be looking um, over the pond at the things that's going on in America now, you know what I mean? I no realise it's actually been on their doorstep for so long, and it's still here.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's why it was great when I had, uh, had the opportunity to be the first Scots person to lecture in America, um, which I did a few years ago at Lachlan, uh, Nevada, a, a big conference here. And it was fantastic for me to present to the American public cases like the A70, um, Dickman Woods incident, uh, the Fife case and, and various other Scottish cases because these guys over there they, 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 they don't know about all these wonderful cases we have here in Scotland and so it was a pleasure to talk to them about it and coming off the stage you know I was mobbed by people tell me more mm-hmm. because you can only say so much in your allotted time you know yeah. and um, they were they were really thirst for knowledge for what was happening in Scotland and of course you're then talking about ghosts and quarter guys and it, it was just great to do that um, you know Tell the American people.
0: When you, you mentioned obviously um, the A70 case, because that was run at the same time, and it, it's still within a swathe land. It's, it's geographically no too far from the rest of the sightings. Yeah. Um, do you want to speak about anything that happened there in the A70 case?
1: Yes, I can do. I mean, I, I dare say some of your listeners may have heard this before, um, but for those listeners who haven't, and I dare say there can't be that many. Um, effectively, it happened in 1992, in August 1992. Uh, two friends, Gary Woods and Colin Wright, were driving from Edinburgh uh, down to the small village of Tarbrax in West Lothian. And as you leave the built-up city of Edinburgh and its grey tenement buildings, etc., the road extends down into kind of farmland. You've got fields on either side, and they were taking a satellite system to their friends, and they were going to set up that. And they left around about, you know, half past 10 or thereabouts. And they were dra- again, I must stress that um, these guys had no interest in UFOs at that time whatsoever. they had heard about it, like we all have on the radio and the TV, but they had no passion for it. All that changed on that uh, August evening in 1992. But as they were traveling down the A70, they passed on their left Harper Rigg Reservoir. Then they approached a blind bend in the road and sitting above this blind bend, was this black, shiny, two-tiered object, which both men again knew this was not an aircraft or a helicopter, and they went, oh, 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 what is this? You know, oh, my God. Now, rather than do a three-point turn and get the hell out of there and get away back to Edinburgh, he says, nope, we're going to Tadbrax. Gary floored it, put his foot on the gas, and drove underneath this object. And as the car was directly underneath this hovering object, the object emitted like a silver shimmering curtain of mist that just fell from beneath this object and hit the car roof. And as soon as it hit the car roof, both men were enveloped in total and inky blackness. They couldn't see their hand in front of their face. They couldn't see the dashboard of the car. um, They couldn't see each other. They thought they were dead. Seconds later, or what appeared to be seconds later. They regained their sight. Gary's struggling with the steering wheel, trying to keep the car on the road. And he was on the other side of the road, you know. He was on the right-hand side of the road. He should have been on the left. And they just tore. They drove away to the destination of Bracks and thumped on the occupant's door. And the occupant... They actually had to wake them out of their bed. And they, they came down and she says, what time do you call this? You should have been here hours ago. Come on, what time is this? Look at the time. They were an hour and a half late, Chris. The journey should only have taken about 35 minutes, and they're an hour and a half late. What's going on here? So they they proceeded to go into the the occupant's house, and they began to tell them the stupid, crazy story of what they'd seen above the A70. And um, of course, they laughed for a wee bit, and then they realised, wait a minute, they know Gary and Colin. They wouldn't make up this. So they stopped laughing, and they realised, hey, these guys, I've seen something. That night and subsequent nights thereafter, both Gary and Colin in their dream world saw these small grey creatures coming into their dreamscape. They then found scars on their body that previously were not there. Scoop like marks, uh, you know, and um, we all know our bodies. Where the hell did this come from? And Gary saying to himself, well, who, who do I contact? Who, who do you touch? Do you, do you tell the police? Do you tell the, who do you go to? He decided his best course reaction would be to go to his local library and they uh, picked out a book by jenny randalls and it had uh, our strange phenomena investigations address in there and he contacted me and i'll try and make this story brief because it's quite a long story mm-hmm. he contacted me and at that time i advocated the use of hypnotic regression i'm we're unsure now but at that time i was Fully fledged in it because the police use it. You know, yeah. they used in that case a few years ago in a bank robbery. Mm-hmm. The the getaway car. There were bystanders, bystanders there, and he says, "What was the number plate?" Oh, I don't know. I don't. I don't know. But under hypnosis, bang, bang, bang. Mm-hmm. Number plate bangs. Simply through hypnosis. Mm-hmm. So anyway, to cut a long story short, I said to Gary, "Look, would you like to go under hypnosis just to see if perhaps something else happened that night?" Oh, Malcolm. Oh, Malcolm, absolutely, we'll try anything we need to know. I says, Oh, look, you may not like what you hear under hypnosis. It may be nothing, it may be nothing, but it will unlock the sluice gates of your mind and who goodness knows what, what might come out. Are you still prepared to do that? Yes. Okay. So we use a qualified hypnotherapist, cut my long story short, qualified hypnotherapist, and we took, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> We took uh, both Gary and Colin back to that August evening in 1992. And then a typical, to a degree, a typical abduction scenario unfolded. Mm-hmm. They said, and this is under hypnosis, the conscious recall was only ever seeing the car. Under hypnosis, they claimed they were taken possibly out of the car by these small grey beings, roughly three and a half to four feet tall, childlike bodies, grey, bluish, translucent skin, pear shaped heads with black inky almond shaped eyes. But they, they were and again there's some differences. One of the differences were they were placed on a floating, a floating stretcher. They were not supported, no little beings were holding this. It was moving of its own volition. Mm-hmm. They then found themselves presumably inside this object. And uh, Gary <coughs> excuse me. <coughs> Gary found himself in this uh, circular room which only had a kind of flat raised table coming up from the ground about three or four feet. He found much to his surprise that he was completely naked. Um, he couldn't move a muscle. He could only move the eyes and his head. And he said, Malcolm, I would dearly have loved to have lashed out of these wee things, but I couldn't, I couldn't move a muscle. Mm. And they saw, both men saw a number of things on board that. And I'll quickly just tell you very briefly, when Gary was lying like that, he found he saw these two grey beings at the foot of this bed. One of them had like a pendulum like device and it was moving it up and down Gary's body. Then Gary remembers a kind of can shape. I can imagine just a normal can of soup, but only had being about three and a half feet tall. Yeah. Same shape rose up from the floor. Then there was an appendage, a flap and an appendage came up from that can with Something like two red LED lights and it was slowly moving twisting and turning next to his head Then above him. This is all different recalls not in the one occasion and another recall. I remember seeing a black oinks shaped Device about three and a half feet tall twisting and tumbling near the ceiling of this room and uh, on another occasion, he saw what appeared to be like a pool of a man's shaving gel, liquid shaving gel, bubble up from the floor of the scrap. It sounds bizarre, but this is what the witnesses said. Mm-hmm. And coming out of that was a small, grey creature. And I says to Gary, you've, because it, they drew after hypnosis, they just wanted to draw what they saw. Mm-hmm. I says, Gary, you've, you've drawn what looks like ribs, ribs on these creatures. Do you think it was ribs? No, no what do you think it was? I think it was heavy folds of skin, Malcolm, doubling up, doubling up, doubling up. And I thought that was interesting. One of the other aspects of the case which was dissimilar to European and worldwide events was, under the eyes of some of these creatures was a red, yellow and green um, lines, coloured lines, like Fish gills, if you like, you know, but only painted red, yellow, and green. Mm-hmm. So that was a difference as well. And uh, Colin had his own experiences as well. So it was a pretty bizarre case. A few years ago, um, Gary passed a BBC lie detector test. And, um, you know, and I mean, that's only saying that Gary believes what happened to him was true. You could say maybe uh, what's going on here is, is UFO abductions are global psychosis. Or is it something real or did he see something natural and his mind made up the rest? But if so, what happened to Colin as well? Hmm. I could say a lot more in that case. It's such a big case, but um, that's the kind of nuts and bolts of it.
0: But there, there's so many people in the, the abduction scenario um, finding that once they get regressed or even if they, they don't need to regress that they, they're seeing the same things or like the same things or the same instruments and, and things like that. You know what I mean? So it's... It's, um, for the amount of cases that do pop up and then for the amount of people that are, are sharing the same experiences um, without seeing some of the stuff in popular culture, you know what I mean? It's, 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 it's tremendous, I mean, it's there.
1: It certainly is, but we have to be careful because, um, you know, since those days I've, I've learned about cryptonesia, which means that uh, something that you may have read as a young boy uh, in a kind of book or a newspaper and maybe we'll say for this a case about UFOs or a UFO abduction it's filed away into the very recess of your mind mm-hmm. and it's forgotten about but under hypnosis a recall of that nature springs to the surface and you think it's happening to you you know you think it's your experience when it when in point of fact it's only something you've read as a small child so we have to be very very careful with hypnosis it's used by proper people, there are not any leading questions, um, but to me, you know, it, it's a tool, it's a tool, it's like a workman going into a building site, he doesn't just go on with a hammer, he go on with a bag of tools to get a job done, and hypnosis is a tool to be used, but only um, very, very careful.
0: Back into, obviously, the, the Falkirk area, and like, even Kenny kind of, it stretches right across, I'm mean, not even going to say Falkirk, I mean, it's like, Kenny kind of central... Right, in of central of Scotland, um, and you've got obviously the seventy case, which like potential abduction, and you've got uh, obviously people are wary of as well, like the Andy Swan case, which is in Armadale, where other yes. c- c- could possibly be an abduction there as well. And you've got the Bob Taylor case, and obviously you've got cases that's happened within the whole kind of folk phenomenon, um, which could potentially have been abductions as well. Um, no, I'm not going to say all in the there's a lot of sightings in there, you know and I mean, but there is cases within that where. Um, it looks like it could have probably been something like that along the lines. Um, did you ever Did you ever find any uh, military involvement, in a, and I'm not meaning in a case where the usual standard letters at the end out saying that it's uh, from no defence significance, um, I'm meaning things like, I'm not going to say the cliché, men in black, but did you ever see any involvement in that? Like the government officials and everybody trying to find out things with the... Um, things between the lines or um, doing their own kind of research without it being known. Did you ever find anything like that at all?
1: No, I mean, I, I remember one chap said um, he took me to task for harassing witnesses in the, the Fife, the Falkland Hill case. And I went, what, what, what do you mean? He says, you've been knocking on people's doors asking about UFOs in that area and it's terrible, Malcolm. You should never have done that. They were quite annoyed at you. I went, when was this? And the gentleman says it was such and such a day. Now, I was working that day at a factory in Alawa for United Glass Limited. Mm-hmm. And I proved that I was working that day. So somebody was masquerading as Malcolm Robinson mm-hmm. on that, you know, to this area, saying they were me. And that really annoyed me. Um, but talking about, you know, men in black or, or people who's maybe tried to interfere with that, um, I've never really come across that personally. I've had a few clicks on the phone back in the day, but nothing recently. Um, the only one interesting case I had of a uh, so-called men in black was when I was revisiting the Dovedale, West Wales UFO sightings of 1977. Um, myself and my ex-wife went down to Wales in 1980, three years later, to reinvestigate them uh, very briefly, because again, it's another big story. Mm-hmm. But very briefly, um, we went up to uh, we were staying at the Broad Haven Hotel. Uh, which is at uh, St. Brides Bay area of uh, West Wales. And we were there to also interview uh, a lady called Rosa Granville, who's of Spanish orientation. And uh, she had the Haven Hotel, which sat atop the these big rocks looking out into the sea. And um, she's had a lot of UFO activity there. There's been a book called The Welsh Triangle by Peter Padgett written about the cases, the the Doven and by Randall Jones-Pews, another book. Anyway, she told me a story when we interviewed her, and she says, Malcolm, OK, I've got so many stories to tell about UFOs, but I'm going to tell you what happened last week. OK, what happened? She says, well, there was a knock on the front door, and I, and I went, opened the door, and she says, Malcolm, there were these two unusual people, for want of a better word, standing there. I says, how do you mean, you know, people? It was people. Well, I'm not sure. Tell me more. She says they had black trousers, black shoes, black jacket, white shirt, black tie, black trilby hat, two of them, and their faces. Malcolm, their faces looked like a China doll, like wax. And they spoke very gutturally to me. And um, they said, do you know where Pauline Coombs is? Now, Pauline Coombs uh, had Ripperston Farham, which has also had a book written about it. Uh, I think it was called The Uninvited by Clive Harold. Um, They had a lot of UFO reports there as well, but that's another story. Mm -hmm. Do you know where Pauline Coombs is? And um, she says, no, I don't know. I don't know where she is. And at that, they kind of stumbled, kind of stuttered, they kind of wobbled and turned round, not like you and I would turn round normally. Mm -hmm. They kind of you know, they were moving very erratically. And then she said, for the first time, she noted a strange black car, but it didn't have any wheels. And she says, Malcolm, normally I get a lot of guests in my hotel and you can hear that the car's crunching up the gravel with the car, you know, tyres on the gravel. Mm-hmm. But I never heard that. And she says, but they were so weird looking. So you can ask yourself the question, you know, were these men from the ministry? um, And if so, why did they look so strange? Or were they something else? Quite bizarre.
0: Totally, yeah. And and going going back to the thing where you're saying where somebody was chapping doors and stuff and and, as an imposter to yourself, um, that happened obviously, it's happened to other researchers, it's happened to John Keel back in the day as well, referring back to him again, when um, he had people um, contact him saying he'd already tried to contact them and, and, and he hadn't. I mean, he knew he was somewhere else and all the kind of things happened. I mean, totally interesting though. You mentioned earlier on that you're obviously back in Scotland and you're looking to do uh, more Skywatches again and stuff. And um, When you're on Skywatches, what do you use now in terms of do you use any technology now or do you still just use the Mark 1 eyeball when you're, when you're <laughs> out for the, the Skywatch?
1: Absolutely, yeah, of course. Um, I mean, uh, the best, you're right, the best course of uh, visionary aids is, of course, good old eyeballs and a good pair of binoculars or a telescope. Um, When we do the sky watches, we try and point out to anybody who wants to come along, um, you know, members of the public, you know, look out for satellites. Some of them it's just like a small bright point of light I'll traverse the sky slowly. Some tumble. Then you've got all this this space station as well, and you've got all these these satellites, etc. So we we try and tell them what's in the sky first and foremost. And then, of course, your aircraft with the navigation lights, uh, you'll see a lot of meteorites, um, you know, coming into the the atmosphere, etc. And then, you know, if you're lucky, if you're lucky... Um, you may see something unusual, and um, that's that's a good thing about it. It's an interaction, it's getting out there with the people and having a good old time, you know, and it's, it's serious, but you can have a good old chat and a good time. I remember we were doing a, <laughs> we were doing a sky watch on the moors at Bonniebridge there a few years ago, and it was next to a big farm, and then coming down this farm track was this big black shape because it was in darkness. All we knew it was somebody coming out. And it got bigger and bigger and broader. And it was this big lady, it was a farm, farm lady. And she had seen all the cars parked you know, along the kind of fields. What are you doing here? What's the meaning of this? Get off my land, you know. <laughs> so yeah, sometimes you really got to get permission to, to you know, park your cars in the moors and stuff like that. But it was quite funny. She said, who's in charge of this rubble? Um, everybody was fighting to say it was me, so I just put my hand up and took the rap, you know. And he says, Get out of this, you know, get away from me. So you can have a laugh and a joke, and um, it's all a bit of fun.
0: I did the uh, at one point um, uh, when I was younger, I got my brother in law, he take me down to one of the, uh, um lectures in Bonnybridge Bridge uh, when I was younger. So I attended one of the lectures in one of the hotels, and then afterwards I went to Skywatch after it as well. What
1: uh, oh, did you? Oh, that's,
0: great. that's back in, great. Back in the day, I must have been about 16 or 17 or something at the time. All right, so I, I can sit and ask you questions all night long, you know what I mean, because you've got a wealth of knowledge and the paranormal, but I think tonight it was like trying to focus mainly on the focal career and, and looking at the, kind of, all the kind of other cases surrounding all that and, uh, and stuff as well. So um, so if people are interested in, in, in looking at um, things for like SPI, where could they find any information on SPI?
1: Well, basically, it's uh, just look for me uh, on on Facebook, uh, Malcolm Robinson, and uh, check us out there. My, my books are available on um, on Amazon. Uh, that's uh, UFO Case Files of Scotland, Volumes One and Volumes Two. The Paranormal Case Files of Great Britain, Volumes One, Volume Two, Volume Three. Um, uh, the book that I loved writing is the Monsters of Loch Ness, which is uh, I, I really enjoyed writing that. And uh, also the Deckman Woods UFO incident, which we haven't touched upon tonight, and uh, and also the Socky Poltergeist, guys, which is my my latest book. And so yeah, just check them out on Google if, and Google, um, and you know, it's and see what you think.
0: I know, obviously due to um, COVID restrictions, uh, the kind of conferences are, are working slightly differently. Are you attending any conferences uh, in the near future?
1: Yeah, I mean, I'm part organizer with Ron Halliday and Alison Dunlop of the Scottish UFO and Paranormal Conference, which has been su- successfully run for a number of years now in Glasgow and Edinburgh and Falkirk. Um, sadly, it's going to have to. It's not postponed this year. It's it's going to be done over Zoom. And anybody that attends my lectures know I don't I don't like Zoom. I, I like just you know interacting with the audience and walking about the stage and really getting in there. Mm-hmm. And just trying to do a lecture on Zoom will be my very, very first time I've used slides on Zoom, so that'll be interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, my talk on the Sockie Poltergeist um, was postponed in November last year, and it's postponed for June this year due to COVID. Mm-hmm. I've now, it's now rescheduled to November the 20th in soccer Hall, and I'll be speaking and showing slides and also um, putting out the actual uh, sounds of the Sockie Poltergeist that was recorded way back in 1965, Uh, um, one of the doctors uh, uh, there, Dr. Logan and so that should be good if it all goes well. Um, In England I'm speaking at a a psychic and spiritual uh, event 3 day event, Spirit Quest in in Bournemouth in a hotel in Bournemouth, that's in October and I'm due to attend uh, a lecture for the Outer Limits conference in Hull, Uh, I'm the assistant editor of that magazine, so yeah, I mean, COVID sadly has affected the entertainment industry massively and uh, it's a great, great shame and I can only hope that, uh, fingers crossed, if we keep, you know, abiding by the restrictions laid down by the, the government and if we all stick to that, things will get better, here's hoping anyway.
0: Yes, freedom is near, it's getting there. Well, welcome, I'd like to thank you very much for your, your time and all your knowledge on the subject um, and especially speaking with me tonight and uh, I'll hopefully speak for you again uh, in the future. Uh, and also I'll attend the the conferences as well, and I'll I'll listen to all the the different lectures that will go on during that, and if anybody else wants to see obviously you can find SPI on Facebook, and all the information would be on there about the conferences, and as Malcolm says, you can find his books and all his information on Amazon as well. So welcome to that again, I'd like to thank you again, and uh, thanks very much.
1: It's been a pleasure, Chris, I've really enjoyed it, and uh, I wish you every success in future shows.